Good morning, dear ones. Such good news. Everything changes when God's kingdom comes. And as we continue our series, Rock, we, we celebrate the kingdom of God that is at hand. The kingdom of God that is presently bursting forth before our very eyes. We are on week five of our series, Ruach, which as Pastor Ali shared just a few moments ago, is a Hebrew word for the breath, the wind, or the spirit of God. And as we continue on this morning, let us prepare our hearts for the word of God broken open in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you. For your presence. We thank you for the good news that the king is among us. We thank you for the good news that you are not distant, but instead you are the God that comes. You are the God that speaks. You are the God that breathes, that moves. For Jesus, your name is power. So God, we pray in these next few moments that this would not be in vain. I pray that we wouldn't miss this moment, whatever it is you want to do. God, I pray that we would posture ourselves and surrender in such a way that as you move, as you work, as you minister, that you would have your way. And so God, as you are breathing over us, Shape us, form us, melt us, mold us. God, have your way. Have your way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Over the last five weeks, we have been taking a look at Ezekiel chapter 37, where we have been looking at the Ruach, the breath of God that moves into the valley of the dry bones. And God calls his his prophet, his servant, Ezekiel, and and begins to give him this vision, which at first this vision is, is rather gruesome. It's rather terrible. As Ezekiel is looking over this this wilderness, this valley of dry bones, and, and God says to Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel responds, oh, sovereign Lord, only you know. And then God begins to expand Ezekiel's imagination and speak. And he says, I will bring these bones together, dry bone to dry bone. The tendons will begin to come together. The the synapses of the brain will begin to come together. I will breathe and, and these once seemingly dead bones will be brought to life. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about those those moments in our lives where we are wandering through those desert or those wilderness-like experiences. Those dead-end moments where we think, oh, we might as well as throw in the towel. Or those broken relationships. The, those moments where we think all is lost, and that is until the breath of God begins to settle in and bring those seemingly dead things back to life. You've heard me say, many times in the last two years here, that there is a shifting happening in our nation. There's a shifting happening in the North American church, if you will. 
The church in North America in many ways is experiencing her own wilderness experience, or we're at least getting glimpses of this wilderness experience. Things are changing. Things aren't what they once were. Things are gray. Things are confusing. If we say the word just evangelical, it confuses people. Many aren't sure if we're, we're talking about partisan politics or if we're talking about Jesus or if we're talking about, about a denomination. Many aren't sure what that name means anymore. And in some ways, we as the evangelical church in North America, we, we all too often are more concerned with, with being right than anything else. And in this confusion... In this trying to reimagine our, our missional posture in our world and in our context, many have been noting the, the change, the shifting. Of course, scholars call it the post-Christian context in general. Thousands of churches are closing their doors every single year. In fact, more churches are closing their doors than churches that are being planted. Seminaries all around the country are trying to figure out how to respond to this. Seminaries around the country are experiencing financial woes because of the decline in enrollment. And so it is with churches. Pastors are gathering together and they're, they're trying to figure out what to do about the lost generation that is millennials. How do we respond about millennials leaving the church at rapid space paces? And many scholars are pointing to Europe, saying, Europe, the place where churches are now restaurants, they're just 10 years ahead of us. And so many are panicking, many are lamenting. How do we respond? What do we do about this? And metaphorically speaking, in many ways, I would say that there is a forest fire raging in the North American context. And while we definitely do not measure our success by attendance, I think it's important that we do take a look at what's going on in our context and pay attention. And more importantly, pay attention to the movement of the Spirit. And while many are lamenting, many are crying out, what we really need to do is we need to go back to where we were 50 years ago. Culture is the problem. The erosion of culture is is what's going on. And what we need is we need a great move of God. We need a revival. Be honest. As a Wesleyan holiness preacher, I've always been fascinated by revivals. Throughout the years, I've taken at least six different church history courses. And I've always just been awestruck by, by some of these incredible revivals down throughout history, whether it be the Azusa Street Revival or the Olivet Revival or, or the very first outpouring of the Spirit in the early church on Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of God's people, And we see the the Holy Spirit empowering people to live in drastically different ways than they've ever lived before. We we see this immediately in in Peter. 
Where once he was struggling to understand the fullness of the gospel, in a moment the Holy Spirit comes upon him and this anointing comes over him and he begins to proclaim the whole story of God and the good news of Jesus. And immediately after the the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, we see prophecy, we see lame men walking, we see healings, we see radical hospitality, we see generosity, momentum, and growth. There were clearly a lot of conversions. And then, as I think about the revivals down throughout history, whether it be the ones here in our own backyard in L.A. throughout the years, or the Azusa Street Revival, or the Olivet Revival, then I often think about the many revivalists that went before us, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Amy Semple McPherson, or Maria Woodsworth Etter. And again, each of these stories, when we read about them, we, we read about the, the experienced reality of the Holy Spirit. As Gordon Fee often says, he says, the Holy Spirit wasn't just some distant reality, but it was an experienced reality within the early church. And and we see this when we read revivals. It was an experienced reality, and we see prophecy, radical hospitality. We see momentum and movement. And out of these revivals, preachers are born. Out of these revivals, evangelists are born. Out of these revivals, teachers are born. Church planters are born. People are coming to Christ at a rapid pace. And in hindsight... I do believe that I experienced a revival of sorts in my high school years. Many of you have heard me share my story. I, I came to Jesus at 16 years old through a ministry called Youth for Christ. And in hindsight, there was something profound happening in our high school. There was a Youth for Christ leader who was a carpenter on the side And he would come into our high school and he would start to just invite all of these students to Campus Life. And within a couple of years, this Campus Life program went from zero to several hundred. And I was just watching one by one, me and all of my friends come to Jesus in incredible ways. And one of the most profound things about that is I look at all of these kids who were all unchurched, who had never heard the name of Jesus before then, We're all in ministry today. It was this great move of God, this this great sweeping through our high school. We were so excited. We were gathering around our flagpoles at the school, gathering around our school every night at 9 o'clock just to pray. And when we prayed, we would just want to stay together and, and worship together and be in the presence of Jesus together. And this morning, several of us are standing behind pulpits preaching. If I can just be vulnerable for a moment, sometimes I feel foolish when I talk about my longings for revival. Sometimes it it just feels so silly to say, oh, I long to see this. I long to see this great awakening happening in our church today. Oftentimes when I say it, I feel like I get a look from someone, oh, that's so sweet, Tara Beth. And I check myself on this all the time. 
I long to see the the spirit of the living God truly be an experienced reality here. I long to see the spirit of the living God truly be an experienced reality in churches around North America in such a way where, where knees are bowing, tongues are confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord at rapid rates. I long to see the spirit of the living God move in such a way where oppressive systems of power are overturned, where neighborhoods and communities are flipped upside down because of the power of the spirit. I long to see people gathering together in worship and desperation where they are running to the church doors because they cannot wait to gather in the presence of the living Lord and one another and use their gifts to empower one another. I long to see reconciliation between classes and races. I long to see those who are in privilege and in power confess in the other ways that they have systemically and systematically participated in harming and oppressing and marginalizing others. And I long to see the vision of the Acts 2 church become an experienced reality here and now today. just ask what's holding us back as the context is shifting things are changing is it that the Holy Spirit isn't present we know that's not the case because we believe in the promises of scripture we we see the movement of the spirit of the living God before our very eyes every single week We are Easter people. We believe and we proclaim in the promises that we are sons and daughters of the resurrection. We are Pentecost people. We believe in the promises of Ezekiel that it has been fulfilled and that it will be fulfilled. And because of the spirit of Pentecost that has been poured out and is being poured out, we are seeing the movement of God before our very eyes. So if we believe in the promises of God and that the king is among us, then then what's happening in the North American context? Why are things seemingly going the opposite direction? Why are things shifting? And as I've been praying about this message this week, as reflecting on the rock of God within God's people, there's a passage of scripture that I've tried to get away a number of different times. But seems like the Spirit just keeps bringing me back. I have written my sermon about six different times this week, and the Spirit keeps drawing me back to this passage. And I keep asking the Spirit, Lord, what does this have to do with Ruach? What does this have to do with this sermon series? So I'd like to take a look with you at Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 29 to 34. You can find it in your bulletins or follow along on the screen or in your pew Bibles in front of you. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning at verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, for they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. 
What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Here ends the reading. This is a common text that the church often looks at during the Lenten season. As Jesus is beginning to set his sight on Jerusalem and journey towards the cross. And as his eyes are sent on Jerusalem, set on Jerusalem and he is journeying to the cross, he passes through Jericho and he sees two blind beggars sitting there on the side of the road. Scholars note that this would have been a high traffic season that those who would have been begging for money or food or comfort or care could have gathered enough money to get them through an entire year. And somehow they hear the news that Jesus is going to be passing through. And as Jesus approaches them, they begin to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd, however, begins to rebuke them. (laughs) Don't be silly. This is Jesus. How dare you ask anything of him? And, And they begin to rebuke them. Hush up. Don't say another word. But they respond in even more desperation. It's as if they knew in that moment that Jesus was their only hope. They knew in that moment that crying out to Jesus was their answer. And they begin to cry out in desperation, Jesus, we have nothing to lose here. Jesus, son of David, do not pass us by. Have mercy on us. And what's incredible is what they call Jesus. They don't cry out, Jesus, my comforter, comfort us. Jesus, son of God, or Jesus, great teacher, or Jesus, great prophet, but instead they cry out, Jesus, son of David, which of course is a reference to the days of King David who came and established his reign and rule and kingdom. And they cry out, Jesus, you are the king the son of David, who has come to establish your reign and rule, come and establish your reign in rule and kingdom in us here and now. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, son of David, do not pass us by. Do not keep on walking, but please stop here. Have mercy on us. Such desperation such desperation and moments of the wilderness and brokenness. This week, I have sat with so many different individuals who are in the valley of the dry bones. I have sat with so many individuals who have just found out that they have been diagnosed with devastating news or cancer or loss of jobs or the loss of a spouse. And every time I leave one of these conversations, I often feel as though I have no words other than, Jesus, come. Jesus, settle in. Jesus, surround them. Jesus, son of David. Jesus, our king, do not pass us by. Jesus, our king. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And so Jesus responds to them, what do you want me to do for you? Which is interesting that he asks that. 
because he has to already know that as they are beggars on the side of the road that they probably are blind. But yet Jesus asks, and we see him do this so many times throughout the Gospels, oftentimes when he encounters someone that is blind or that is lame, and he, he responds, what would you like me to do for you? Which is a crazy question. So why did Jesus then ask that? It's almost as though Jesus wants them to be the ones to name it. It's, it's almost as though Jesus wants them to be the ones to put themselves out there in a vulnerable place, to put themselves out there on a limb and to ask the crazy question, to ask the possible, impossible, to take a risk, to believe the impossible. And so they respond, Lord, we want to see. And there's so many different things that they could have asked for. They could have asked for food. They could have asked for more money. They they could have asked for a blanket. They could have asked for a place to sleep. They, They could have asked for someone to care for them. There's so much they could have asked for. But instead, just by that very question that Jesus asked them, what would you like me to do for you? In a moment, their imaginations were opened up. And suddenly, what was once impossible, they believed was possible. They began to believe in that moment that something could be done that only God could do. They began to believe in that moment that something divine could happen, something supernatural that they could, in fact, see. And it was just by that very question, their imaginations in a moment began to open up and they began to see the possibilities through God's eyes. They imagined divine possibilities through. God and their imaginations were broken open. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Do not pass us by. We want to see. And I wonder if the bride of Christ in the North American context has found herself in this new place, in this odd place, where many pastors are gathering together. What do we do? How do we respond? What is our new missional posture in our context and in our neighborhood? And many are crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Do not pass us by. And I wonder, as we cry out in desperation, and Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What if we too named the vulnerable? What if we too went out on a limb and and asked for something that only God can do? We so often, we, we don't want to go there. And we begin to look to God and God says, what do you want me to do for you? We say, Lord, fill me, feed me, give me what I need. Or we say, Lord, Take us back to where we were 30 years ago. Take us back to where we were 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when we had approval from culture, when our context and our neighborhoods, almost everyone was Christian, Christian, when when almost everyone on Sunday mornings was, was going to church. Take us back before the erosion of culture. Take us back before everything was all PC, and now it's just so complicated, and now it's so messy. I just want to go back to when it was easier. Meanwhile, while we're praying to go back, 
Our imaginations are shrinking. And we're missing out on the divine possibilities. Or instead, perhaps, when we're crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Instead of responding, take us back. Instead, pray, God, I want to see as you see. And God, I want my imagination to be broken open and expanded. Lord God, I want my imagination to begin to see what I thought was once impossible, possible. Dear ones, we are Easter people. We are Pentecost people. And the king is among us. The spirit of the living God is here. And so can we, the church, be a people who cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, our king, do not pass us by. Jesus, open and expand to our imaginations. Help us to see our steps and our future the way that you see it. Help us to see our neighborhoods in the way that you see it. Help us to see one another in our relationships the way that you see it. Jesus, son of David, expand our imaginations. Forgive us that we just want to go back to Egypt. Forgive us that we just want to go back to 30, 40, 50 years ago, but instead, God, expand our imaginations to see things the way that you see it, and I believe that when we do, the holy rock of God begins to breathe, and slowly, our imaginations are expanded, and the eyes of our hearts are opened. At the beginning of my sermon, I noted that metaphorically speaking, perhaps the North American church, or the church, I should say, in North America, is experiencing a forest fire of sorts, which is, I know, a terrible metaphor for Southern California. Don't say that. A storm, if you will, is raging. Back in December, my family and I had the opportunity to go to Sequoia National Park in Kings Canyon. And my entire life, I always wanted to see the sequoia trees. I remember growing up in Illinois and watching on the little slides in science class and seeing these just behemoth trees with people that looked like ants sitting right next to them. I remember thinking, I want to see those someday. And so my family and I went in December, and nothing could prepare me. Even pictures couldn't prepare me for the beauty and the grandeur of what I saw. Those trees are something else, and to think that those trees, some of them have been around since Jesus walked on this earth and longer. And what's amazing about those trees is when we were walking around and hiking, we, we could see some of the impacts of forest fires. And I was so troubled when I was walking through this park, thinking about fires taking over these trees. But what was stunning so many times is that when we would hike through areas where there had clearly been a forest fire, there stood these sequoia trees, still alive and still well. And what I learned, 
I was reading more about it. I was going up to a lot of the, pa- the plaques there in front of the trees, and I was reading a lot online, is, is what many may not know is that sequoia's thick bark is actually mostly fire-resistant. And some of the sequoia trees have, have survived hundreds and hundreds of fires. And what I also didn't know is for the sequoia tree species to continue to live on throughout generations. Every tree only needs to produce just one other tree. Just one other tree. But what many may not know is for the future of these trees to continue to exist is that forest fires are necessary. Without forest fires, through the years, thick layer of of debris and and pine needles and and branches and whatever the forest floor collects over time, it, it begins to pile up. So when the seeds fall on the ground, there is no rich soil for it to be planted into. And then when the seeds fall on the ground, and if it happens to make it in dirt, it is covered up by this calloused or thick layer of debris, so it cannot be produced. There's no room, there's no space for new life to grow. But when a forest fire comes through, slowly debris and the callous layer is cleansed out. And this debris is destroyed and makes room for new life to be planted so that the new life can then be planted in that rich soil. And signs of spring then begin to happen. And these tiny sequoia seeds are then planted and then have room to grow and grow and grow. Do you hear that? What many see as a problem, what many see as scary, what many see as a hindrance is actually a possibility for new life. It paves the way for new life, for signs of spring to then burst forth. You see, what many declare as the valley of the dry bones, the Ruach of God breathes over and declares life. What many declare as decline and impossibilities, the Ruach of God breathes and begins to declare signs of spring and signs of new life. What many declare as a dead end, the Ruach of God begins to breathe, breathe opportunity. For God is making all things new. Yes, things are changing. Yes, there's... A forest fire of sorts. Yes, church doors are closing. There's doors. And yes, we ought to lament about that. But we also ought to pay attention to the Ruach of God that is breathing and making all things new. I don't know about you, but I don't want to look at the shifting sands around us. I don't want to look at the signs of the wilderness experience that the bride of Christ is experiencing in North America. And I don't want to throw in the towel. But instead, when we cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. I don't want to cry out, God, take us back to where we were 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because culture is really the problem. 
But instead, when we look out and we see the signs of this wilderness experience, I want us to be open up to the rock and breath of God and where we see impossibilities to ask and pray for God to open up our eyes and our imaginations to see divine possibilities and to see the God that is presently working to make all things new. Because God is making all things new. What we see as a problem what we see is a moment where we are stuck in reverse. Perhaps God is inviting us to imagine something new altogether, but not to go back, but to go forward and see things like we've never seen it before and pray very simply, Lord God, we believe in the renewing spirit. Lord God, we believe in the the reviving spirit. Lord God, we, we believe that your spirit is the experienced reality today and now. So God, as we look ahead to the future of this church, I pray that you would help us to reimagine our missional posture and that you would give us your imagination as we engage our neighbors and the world. Lord God, breathe the rock of God and help us to imagine things totally new. by one, everyday, ordinary Christians reimagining their location in their context, how they engage their neighbors. Reimagine. And so I don't want to be the only one praying this every single week. Jesus, son of David, do not pass us by. Jesus, son of David, don't let us miss this moment of what you are doing before our very eyes. Don't let us have calloused hearts, but instead cleanse away the debris that is keeping us from seeing God. I pray that you would remove our stubbornness. I pray that you would continue to humble us. And I pray that you would bring us to a place where our blind eyes, where the scales from our eyes fall, and we can begin to see the God who is making all things new. And God, pray that we would not be held back, but instead we would participate in that goodness of what you are presently doing. Give us your missional imagination for this world. I don't want to be the only one to pray that. And so this morning we are going to invite you to participate in communion. And we have our communion servers on both sides. And what we're going to invite you to do, we're going to Participate in communion through intinction. So you're going to go and you're going to find the servers. And you're going to first take the bread. And they're going to say, this is the body of Christ, which has been broken and given for you. And they're going to place it in your hand. And then you're going to take it and you're going to dip it in the juice. And they're going to say, this is the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. And then when you are done, I want to invite you to join me in prayer to pray just simply. Jesus, son of David, do not pass us by. Jesus, son of David, give us your imagination and help us to see the divine possibilities before our very eyes. And so everyone is going to go out to your left and to your right. I'm the worst traffic director in the world. (laughs) So if you're on this side, you're going to go that way. If you're on this side, you're going to go that way. And if you want to come to the altar and pray, or if you'd like to stand and pray. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he gathered around the tables with his friends. And after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, 
which has been broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he declared, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Every time you drink of this, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of me. God, we confess that we are not worthy of the body broken and the blood poured out, but we thank you that all who confess Jesus Christ is Lord are invited to come to this table and partake as one bride of Christ. And God, as we do this incredible thing called communion, and as we cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us, I pray that our imaginations would be open to the divine and that you would continue to press us to imagine, reimagine, imagine, reimagine your ways. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.